Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. It's where we'll start. We've got several verses that we'll look at. On the front of your bulletin is a message from Brother Fred. I hope that you will read that. And also, he came Wednesday night. I was out of town, and um, he called me Wednesday and said, you know, I think uh, I'm going to, I need to go over and share with the church in light of the election. We've prayed for two years, and I just need to go and share. So uh, if you weren't there Wednesday, you missed getting to see Brother Fred, and uh, he came and he shared a message that's very, very good. Um, And we've got a bunch of those CDs in the back today. So feel free to go by and pick one of those up and listen to his comments about uh, Tuesday's results and where we are. And also, um, it's, that's something that I'm going to be sharing some about today uh, quite a bit. I know that most of us feel sick over Tuesday. Some of you feel sick over last night, but that's another day, another story that we don't want to deal with. So one person called me on the way home. I went up to the game, and on the way home, they called me, and they said, we lost the... The nation on Tuesday, and we lost the national championship last night. This has been a heck of a week. And, uh, of course, you know, we put things back in perspective. Uh, But Tuesday was a a, a serious day for us. And I know, if you're like me, I watched the the, uh, results in great anticipation. And when the results came in so rapidly... I stood there, I didn't sit, I was standing in front of my television and I just shook my head. Somewhat not caught by surprise, but certainly with a sickening feeling deep in the soul. What I've heard from many of you is you felt the same way. I was in Orlando, and by the way, thank you for your prayers. Dr. Farron Hollinger and I got to share to all the financial officers for every public school system in the state of Florida on Friday morning, and it went exceptionally well. In fact, they've already invited us back, and uh, it's great to go and shine the light of Christ into the public school arena, especially amongst leaders such as the financial officers of those public school systems, and it went great, and so thank you for your prayers. But Dr. Hollinger and I were at the airport, and the line was unusually long to go through the checkpoint of, uh, you know, make sure you're not carrying something on the plane you're not supposed to. And we're standing there, and we're listening to different people, and of course they're talking about the election. A woman was standing in front of me, and she had a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Very good book. And I said, how's that book? And she said, "Uh, oh, it's great. And we started a conversation about the book. Then she said, have you read so-and-so book? And I said, no, I haven't read that. I've heard about it. I heard it was good. And she goes, you ought to pick that up. And I, in return, said, well, have you read the book We Forgot? You know, that's the book I wrote, right? I said, have you read the book We Forgot? And she goes, no, I haven't. Is it good? And I said, oh, it's a really good book. <laughs> she said, well, what? what? And Farron Hollinger sitting back there shaking his head like, oh, my gosh. And, he goes, and, and, and she goes, uh, well, uh, what's it about? And I said, it's about the first inauguration of George Washington as president and how that ties in with New York City and 9-11 and St. Paul's Chapel. She goes, well, who wrote it? I said, a guy named Joe Savage. <laughs> we moved on. That's the last I heard. 
Fearing ghosts, that's some kind of way of self-promotion I've never seen before. But we split lines, and, and uh, I did see her on down into the airport and said hello back to her, and, and uh, it was good to talk to her. And, but while we're standing there, another gentleman was listening to us. And about that time, another man walked by, and he had on an Obama hat. And I'll be honest, my first response was fleshly. But then I looked at all the safety guards around, and I figured that was not a good idea what came in my head. And this man from Wyoming who was standing there, had been listening to Dr. Hollinger and I, I guess our accents as well, said, I'm thinking there's not a whole lot of Obama hats around the state of Alabama. And I said, I think you're probably right. And we got in a conversation as we went through the line together for the next 15 minutes. He was a horse, he's a horse vet from Wyoming. Boots and all. And as we talked, we were going through the line and he was sharing his sentiments about the election. And then he made the most alarming, eye-opening statement that I've heard since Tuesday. He said, my mother passed away Tuesday. I said, really? He said, yeah, the same day as the election. And I said, well, I'm very sorry about your mother. Was it unexpected? He said, yeah, we didn't know it was coming at all. I said, well, I'm very sorry. I tried to encourage him. And as we're going and getting ready to go through those long lines that basically has occurred since 9-11, and all the terror stuff that now we have to do all of these different things for. The man says, I'll be honest with you. I don't know what was worse on Tuesday, losing my mother or losing my nation. I was thinking about that thought this morning. Our nation, in many ways, is like our mother. And all the times that we've prayed and all the songs that we've sang and so forth. But y'all, we have to keep things in perspective. He still reigns. God is still in control. Now, let's take a look at this for a moment. Look at Romans chapter 1. Today I want to answer, or try to answer, some questions regarding the, that, we, that stemmed from this election. What do we do now? Where was God on election day? How do we respond? Could this be the end times? We'll deal with some of those questions this morning in the next 30 minutes or so. But first thing that we have to acknowledge and understand is this. Look at chapter 1 of Romans, verse 21. And as I read this, see if you picture this as our country. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Is that true? We know God, but we're not 
glorifying God. Nor were thankful. But because of futile, but became futile or empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Does that sound like us? Darkened hearts? I've heard over and over people say, it's almost like people have blinders on. Yeah, we're in darkness. Absolutely. 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words... We've changed the glory of God, knowing there's God, for the incorruptible man to follow man, to do what man wants. We've created our own Godhead being ourselves instead of Jesus Christ. All the while knowing there is God, but choosing to not glorify God. 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Well, we see that, what we voted for, and I say we as a nation, certainly I didn't vote this way, but we as a nation, the majority voted for verse 24, the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who has changed the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, and then it goes on down, 29, and even they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And he goes on down with what would be not fitting. The truth is what we find in Scripture as truth. That on Tuesday, our nation chose sin over righteousness. Now, am I saying one candidate was sin and the other candidate is righteousness? I can make that case, but that's not the intent of the message today. We talked about that last week. What I'm saying is, is that absolutely, we as a nation chose to vote for abortion on demand, pro-homosexuality, the redefinition of marriage, a larger government with more control over individuals' rights, limited religious freedom. We chose that as a nation, all the while knowing there's a God but not glorifying God. Now the question is, and Brother Fred will deal deals with this much better than I on his CD. Say, well, where was God? Well, God is sovereign. We understand that, right? God is in control. We don't just sing the song as a fairy tale. He is in control. But God also allows freedom of choice. 
So on Tuesday, the majority of Americans, or at least those who voted, went to a poll and chose to go against God. You say, well, how is that against God? Because God is never for the taking of life, the redefinition of marriage. In other words, God will not go contrary to this book that we hold as a roadmap for our life. So, was it God's will for President Obama to be elected? And again, Brother Fred deals with this on his tapes. I'm not going to go into it in detail. But here's the deal. God is never for one who is against him. God can't be for sin. You see where we're going with this? God can't be for, let's redefine marriage. God isn't for that. So what happened on Tuesday is we sinned as a nation against God. And there will be consequences that we pay for that. And we can come in here, we can candy coat it and so forth. No, there's hope because God is still on the throne. God still reigns. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And that we as his children, we who have chosen to follow him, that God's got us in his hand and God will give us strength. God gives us hope. God gives us a future. God gives us answers. And we know where our glory is. The problem I have is I believe in God. I know God reigns and I can't wait to see God. And I know that no matter what happens in my life, that Romans 8.28 is true, that all things do work together for good for those who are called or called for his purpose and love him right and we believe that you believe that that's a part of who you are so we trust him in and through that verse of scripture romans 8 28 the problem i still have is i hate it for my nation and i hate to see anyone choose sin over god that's what makes me gut sick you see though we must come to a place of not being sickened over 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 an election Y'all, what we must be sickened over is the lostness of man in America. You see, what we've did, the election is nothing, nothing more than a symptomatic problem. What the election did was revealed the fruit of what we sowed in 1962 when we chose to take prayer and God and Scripture out of the public school sector. And then we've let the liberals continue to run things over and over again. And then we bought into political correctness. And then the church, for many of us, we chose to just be a voice of God instead of the hands of God. Therefore, people saw us as a boisterous mouthpiece instead of the loving instruments of God's love through and grace through our hands. And now what we have in 2012, after 40 or 50 years of this mess, is we saw, we reaped what we sowed for the last 40 years. It shouldn't catch us by surprise. You cannot plant seeds of, of sensuality and seeds of sin and seeds of self-gratification and seeds of self-glorification over, over decades and not expect people to act like sinners. And instead of being sickened, if we can change and channel our focus from this anger towards, towards, towards the, those who voted for Obama or those who voted for sin or those who are, are against us and the very values that we have. I mean, one statement that gets me absolutely livid is knowing that the president said in regards to the homosexual agenda and the redefinition of marriage that this is about a moral cause. This is morality. We've got to do something about it because it's moral. It's right. Well, what he's saying is, is then, this book is immoral. That means our belief system is immoral. 
It fired me up coming on the uh, hearing on the radio Tuesday or, or, or Friday, you know, Friday. The DJ on the secular station say, before they play the song, celebrate good times by cooling the gang. He said, we've been partying since Tuesday. Everybody's partying since Tuesday. And for all of you in the GOP, come back and let's be together as one, as Americans. We will never stand with that what's contrary to God. The party might be partying, which is why we're in the mess that we have. Because we've chosen a party over God. But you see, let's redefine what the real party is. Y'all, we have to get this today. I'm telling you, we have got to understand this principle today. The party happens in heaven, according to Scripture, when one person repents and comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the angels in heaven celebrate and give God glory. If we want to take their party and flip it on their head to be God's party, it's people coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The, system, the, the symptomatic problem we had on Tuesday, the fruit is uh, we've sowed seeds for a long time of corruption. And acceptance and tolerance. So God's still in charge. God still reigns. God is still God. And that gives me hope. And what else gives me hope is this. There's a lot of people in this country from Maine to Alaska from San Diego to Miami. There's a lot of people who love Jesus Christ, who are praying for our country, who wants to see God move, who wants to share, people, share the love of Christ with the lost, who wants to see our nation restored. The good news is, we're not just, it's not like, hey, we're at Luke 418, we're on an island, we're all by ourselves. There are millions of people across this country who love Jesus Christ. And the other good news is, they are in every corner of society. So while we may have one that's anti-God in the White House, guess what? We've got a governor who's in the governor's house who loves Jesus. And I don't completely agree with Governor Bentley on everything, but I know the man, I've gotten to talk with the man, he loves Jesus. We have people elected across this country. I mean, everything government is not bad. In fact, you can look in Scripture, God instituted government to carry out the way of society. You have to have government. It's always been and always will be. But I praise God for even local leaders right here who love Jesus. So it's not like we're just out on this island by ourselves, and that gives us hope. God will spare our nation. Now, we may have some kind of consequence, because, and, and we'll see that. I don't know what the future holds. And some people I've heard say, well, this must be the beginning of the ends of time. Is it? Brother Fred told me a story. I wish I could remember the older pastor's name, but I can't. And I won't even tell the story exactly right, so I'm going to put the Joe Savage spin on the story. It's not like the other day I was speaking to an all-African-American women's uh, group, and they had a few pastors there, and I had told an illustration, a story, and when it was over with, this pastor stood up and he said, he said, Dr. Savage, I like that story. 
He said, I will go and tell that story in my church and repeat and use that story. I like that story. This is in front of where goes. The first time, I'll give you credit. The second time, I will say, I heard this story. And the third time, I'm going to make it into my own story. So this is not mine, and I don't remember whose it was. I don't remember the, all the details, but it's like this on the end times. One simple fact and truth is this. We're closer today than we were yesterday. How this pans out and plays out, I have no idea. For us to predict if we're at the end times, I think we certainly can be and, should, and we might be. I think there's a lot of scriptural indicators of that or we can look into the future and see where it appears that we're going globally and see a lot of this play out. However, it's not for us to predict the times or the seasons. It's up to us to be prepared for the coming of Jesus in a moment of time. And it's up to us to make sure that we do all that we can to make sure that Jesus gets glorified on this planet and that we fulfill the great commandment of loving others and the great commission of going and telling others and making disciples. Now, the illustration was this. Is it the end time? It's like a theater. The crowd has gathered. The curtains are getting ready to open. The players on stage are prepared The sound and light is waiting. The furnishings for the stage is prepared and in place. And all we're doing now is waiting for the producer to say, open the curtains, it's showtime. Because the pieces are there. But don't let that alarm you or be, bring fear into you. I've heard several people say to me, this election scares me to death. Well, why does it scare you to death? Because I don't know what this means for us. What do you think it means for you? Well, I don't know what, what, what's going to happen to us all. Open the book. God tells us. We're in good hands. And it's not all state. It's God's hands. So there's no reason for us to fret over it. Or be fearful over it. God does not give us a spirit of fear, but of sound mind. And God will see us through. Now, what do we do? How do we respond? First off, we respond through prayer. We pray for our president and his family. We pray for our vice president and his family. We pray for our Congress. We pray for our governor. We pray for our commissioners, which, by the way, Jerry Carl won, a member of our church for county commissioner. We celebrate that. We pray for our mayor. We pray for leaders across the nation. Why? Because we're told to pray for those in authority over us. So we pray. What do we pray for? One, we pray for salvation for those of them who are lost. We pray for safety. We pray for wisdom. We pray that God would orchestrate in their hearts and minds 
to take us towards God, towards Him, and towards the things of God. And let me make a bold statement. If we do not pray for our president, then we're out of God's will. He doesn't say pray for the, those who you elect, who you like, and who you agree with. In fact, in Scripture, when all of this, and we see this throughout time, especially, but especially when, when, when these Scriptures are written in the New Testament, there was no Christian government in place. You understand that, right? So, when Paul instructs us to pray for those in our authority, that's what we do. And I would ask you today, as one action point, if you will, is will you take a moment today and you pray and you say, Lord, who would you want me to pray for every single day? Is that President Obama? Is that his wife, Michelle? Is that their children? Is that maybe the secretary of the president? Could it be the vice president? Could it be a member of Congress? Ask God to lay someone on your heart that you can pray for every single day. That's the right thing for us to do. We pray for revival in this country. An awakening in our land. Just as Jesus looked out at the crowds and said they're like sheep going to the slaughter. We must have eyes of compassion and look out across this country and see the same. And we must pray for God to awaken the church. That God would awaken our elected leaders. God would, elect, would, 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 would awaken even us, for that matter. And bring a sweeping revival. We have seen it. Pockets of communities across the nation, we've seen this occur. But we also have seen, through the first great awakening, the second great awakening, in this country where there was a tremendous revival out of nowhere that turned, where literally tens of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, even in some cases hundreds of thousands of people, came to know Jesus Christ as Lord. And the churches were absolutely overflowing and people were hungry and thirsting after righteousness we have seen it we his history tells us of these times and we will see them again in this land i believe that god will take this election And I believe that the church will pray like never before. And I'm talking about the church universally across our country. I think it will unite the church like never before. That Christians will step up to the task of praying and serving and loving. I think there's going to be a new effort of church starts throughout our northern cities. Where vast lostness is so prevalent. And I think we're going to see a revival in this land. I really do. I think what Satan sometimes means for bad, 
God is the master of turning it on its head and flipping it around and turning it for good to his glory, honor, and praise. And I'm counting on that, and I believe that's going to happen. Now, we pray. We also look to Jesus, not to government. Look to Jesus, not to Obama. Look to Jesus and not to the television screens and the talking heads every night. I think it's wise that we be aware of things that go on around us. But if we dwell on what is bad and dwell on rumors and dwell on all of these different things, if this vast highway or information highway then we can sit there for hours upon hours filling our minds with what could be and what should be and what wasn't as opposed to looking to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, that we find in Hebrews chapter 12, the perfecter of our faith, the one who writes the script, the one who sees us through, the one who gave us salvation. We fix our eyes on, as Hebrews says, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Satan would want nothing more than for us to fix our eyes on everything that's coming out of D.C. or everything that's coming across the TV screens. And again, that's not to be foolish. It's not to be stick our heads in the sand. We need to be educated. We need to be smart. We need to be wise. We need to know what's going on. But if we only look at what's going on and don't look to Jesus... Let's learn the lesson from Peter in the boat. If you take your eyes off him, you're going to sink in the storm. If you keep your eyes on him, then you can walk on water. And what I'm looking for in this country is for God's people to walk on water in a miraculous way because our eyes are fixed on a Savior named Jesus Christ. Look at Acts 17 with me. And this is very interesting. I am grateful to my friend Bo Rice, who pastors over at First Baptist Church of Loxley, Alabama. He's a fellow chaplain with me of Baldwin County Sheriff's Office. And I had asked Bo to come and share Wednesday night when Brother Fred... Uh, uh, called and said that he felt like he should come and share. And so Bo got ditched. And I called Bo. He's a young and upcoming pastor. He's fantastic. And I called Bo and I said, well, Bo, when Brother Fred speaks, you know, sorry. And he understood, of course. I said, well, I said, were you ready? And he goes, yeah, I have my sermon ready. I said, tell me what it was. And he told me what it was. It's so good. I'm about to give it to you. Or at least a, a small portion of it. And we'll get Bo back at the church because y'all need to hear him. He's a, he's a wonderful guy. Chapter 17, verse 16, is dynamic. Paul and Silas and Timothy have been traveling around sharing about Jesus. And some places people responded positively and some places they were literally ran them out of town. 
And in chapter 17, verse 16, Paul goes to Athens. And he leaves Silas and Timothy behind, and they're going to catch up to him. He said, guys, I'll meet you in Athens. Now, let me tell you about Athens for a moment. Athens had been the philosophical capital of the world, the educational capital of the world, economic capital of the world, the the arts capital of the world. Athens had it all. They were the leading place in the world. And then things began to change and people began to leave Athens and Athens basically was left as a void. And they still had a prominent name without prominence and influence in the world. Athens, in fact, had shrunk to 10,000 people. And Athens basically had become a place of where people were pursuing different gods. They didn't know what to believe. And so they had gods, little gods, all over Athens. In fact, a, a, a philosopher during that time, Petronius, said it was easier to find God in Athens than to find a man. And Paul... In verse 16, we pick it up. Now, while Paul waited for them, being Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, let's take a look at that for a moment in the Greek. Paul walks into Athens, this city that's known for prominence, and he's shocked at what he finds. It says that he was provoked within. The spirit was provoked within him. The literal Greek word for that is this. That he was angered and upset. Another way to put it was that he was disillusioned and caught off guard and angry and upset and disappointed and fretful deep within his soul. Sounds like us at 10.30 Tuesday night. What was he upset by? It says that his spirit was angered and grieved within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, watch this. This is important. Now, I've said it, but we've got to walk out of here understanding it. Paul was perplexed, grieved, angered, hurt, disillusioned. Not because of who was in charge. Not because of what the city looked like. Or, but instead, he was upset and angry because, and the spirit within him was angry and upset because of the lostness of Athens. For us, as followers of Christ who has the great commandment and the great commission, deep within us where rivers of living water being the Holy Spirit wants to flow out of us, out of our mouths, out of our hands, and beautiful feet are those who bring good news and so forth. We cannot be so fixated on Tuesday and the election and who's in the White House What we must get fixated is on Jesus and following his commandment and be upset because our country is so lost and it was evident of what happened Tuesday. 
Let me put it in perspective for you for a moment of how lost we are. A few weeks ago when Pam and I were in New York City, I had some meetings over in Queens, New York. Queens has 2.3 million people who live in Queens, New York. If it was a standalone city, it would be the fourth largest city in the country. People on top of people. And I'm over there in the, in the meeting about having our students partner in with some ministries in Queens that we can go in and help start churches, that we can help reach immigrants, that we can help reach the poor, that we can help reach anybody in the marketplace, wherever. And God has laid this on my heart for us to go to New York and try to make a difference spiritually. And that's what the meeting was about. In the midst of that meeting, the Pew Foundation came out with some alarming statistics that for the first time ever, America is only 48% Protestant. That America has 20% that declare themselves as nuns. N-O-N-E, not Catholic nuns. That they don't have a belief system. So Dr. Foley, the president of University of Mobile, wrote me an email, and he said, these numbers just came out, wanted you to be aware of it. What is our plan to change that? We cannot lose our country on our watch. I wrote back to him, and I said, Dr. Foley, I sit in Queens, New York, where there's 2.3 million people. What we must understand in the Bible Belt, particularly the belt, the belt buckle of the Bible Belt, being Alabama, is that life in Alabama is not like life in the remainder of the country. In the midst of 2.3 million people, 48% of these people in Queens were born in a foreign country. Many do not speak English. In the midst of this, only 2% are considered evangelical Christians. Now, to put the math in perspective, that means only 46,000 Christians and 2,254,000 people who would be considered lost. Now, does that equate into others who could be a Catholic who knows the Lord or some kind of something else that's hidden and tucked away or whatever? that doesn't take into statistics. But those who believe and understand salvation, as we understand salvation found in Scripture, 46,000 Christians, 2,254,000 lost people in Queens, New York alone. That's one city. My wife is from Cleveland, Ohio. I lived in Cleveland for four years, five years before I moved, four years before I moved here. If you were watching the election, it came down to Cuyahoga County. Which way is Cuyahoga County going to go? And Cuyahoga County gave the election over us when the votes went over. Cuyahoga County is Cleveland. That's where I live. What I'm telling you is the place is spiritually lost. Now let me make a statement that I hope will resonate with you and make sense. 
Paul in this passage of Scripture. He's angered on the inside. He's provoked because he saw the city was given over to idols. So what did he do? Did he go picket? Did he go complain? Did he go watch? Did he go murmur? Did he, what, did, what did Paul do? His response needs to be our response. In verse 17. Therefore, in other words, therefore, the word therefore is because of this, he went and did this. Because they were so lost, he went and did this. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews... And with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. His response was not to be angry towards the people, or to give up, or to say, where is God, or to say, the heck with it all, or to say, I hate this place I'm leaving, or saying, whatever, that some of us all have that's deep within us, Paul's response needs to be our response, which is we're provoked by the lostness that we see in our country, and we respond by simply turning around and sharing the love and hope of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Now what he does is, if you read the rest of that, and we, we, won't, we don't have the time, nor will we, and I encourage you to read the rest of this chapter, He goes in and he begins to share about who God is. And as he walks around, look at verse 22, though. This is important. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. As a nation, we're very religious. He said, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. He didn't condemn. He simply said, let me share with you the God that you don't know yet. And that's what he did. Y'all, we must refocus and regroup And absolutely place our focus on Jesus. Not get caught up in all the landscape of voices and noises. Of negativity. We must not live in fear. We must not give up. We must not give in. We must just not just say forget it. Instead what we do is we understand there's lost people in our country. And we must do whatever we can to take the good news to them. Now, did you hear what I said? Whatever we have to do to share the gospel with the lost. We must do it in Mobile. If that building is only for us to come and gather together so that we can have a nice building, God's going to be greatly disappointed and we've totally missed the mark. The word church means called out ones. And Paul went, yes, to the synagogue, but he also went to the marketplace. That means where the lost people are. And I'm encouraging all of us to take a look at how we give, where we go, what we do, 
How can we reach the lost? How can we be as intentional like laser-like power to reach lost people in Mobile, lost people across the state, and lost people across this country in Cleveland, in New York, in Boston, in Philadelphia? We cannot simply sit back and say, those people are crazy. Look how lost they are. Let me make a statement to you. Lost people, we saw in Romans 1, lost people live in darkness. Lost people act like lost people. Lost people vote for lost things. Lost people don't have the same values that we have because they're in darkness and they don't understand God. They don't know Jesus. And people in Cleveland and in New York and other places, and even some right here in our own backyard, they know there's a God, but they don't understand who Jesus is. And how will they know unless they are told? And how will they be told unless someone goes and tells them? We must do all that we can to share Jesus to every corner of this country that God's so greatly given to us. Does this make sense? And let me make one more statement. The message is not to convert them to vote like we want them to vote. That's spiritual immaturity. That's self-serving. We go because there's a Jesus who died on the cross and spread his arms and died for them as a sinner, just like he died for us as a sinner. And we want to share that same Jesus that died for me with the person who's lost that doesn't know him. Does this make sense? Our name is Luke 4.18 for a reason. And that's what we do, is we must intentionally target those who don't know Christ. And I believe we can do that. I think that we must do it with great, great effectiveness and intentionality. So the question lies, how will we respond? We respond by not looking to the past, not dwelling on Tuesday, not looking at what could have been, but instead we move forward because Jesus Christ is Lord and He instructs us to pray for the, our authorities and we will pray. He instructs us to pray for awakening and revival and we will pray. He instructs us to love the lost and we will love the lost and we will go forward and we will not fret, we will not fear because we know who, our, who holds our future and who holds our today and that is what we're going to do as a church. Amen? So, we can't sit back and be all up in arms. Yes, it's concerning. But if anything good comes out of this, it is God provoking us, just like he did to Paul, to go and share to a lost world. Because that's where we are right now.